parents emigrated to the United States in the 50s. Both of them were in a concentration camp um, in Germany. My relationship with my father was always um, challenging. You look for your father to be a guide in a lot of ways, and he was not available to me in that, in that manner. One of the things that was a big challenge for me in my entire lifetime was he never told me he loved me. In my mid-20s, um, my dad passed away. All the things that I never said to him, I just had so much regret over the fact that there was never going to be an opportunity to reconcile that relationship. It was gone. The uh, priest at my father's funeral asked me what kind of rate he could get on a quarter of a million dollar CD he had rolling over. Of all the times and all the places to ask someone that kind of a question, that was the last straw for anything to do with religion or spiritual anything. I wanted nothing to do with any of them ever again. My relationship with my wife was never great. After my father passed away, things got worse. I have a very vivid recollection. It's probably among the worst memories I have in my life of telling my girls that I was leaving and walking out the door and my five-year-old um, clinging to my leg and begging me not to go. I left and we, we got divorced. The next year I was about as adrift as you can get adrift. A woman that I had gotten to know named Peggy, she encouraged me to go to church. I liked her, she was pretty, and I thought, okay, if I humor her, maybe she'll go out with me. So, fine, I'll go. I left there thinking, wow, that's church? That can be what church is? And so, um, I kept going. About a year later, I had been dating Peggy, but I was pushing her to a uh, level of intimacy with which she was not comfortable and wasn't going to go, and that's not what she wanted. And so she ended it. It's November 23rd, 1996, and I'm staring at a blank wall. I almost felt like I was listening to an argument in my head, and it was essentially how I was, I was useless. I had, um, I had ruined everything, and there was no point in me living anymore. I really don't know how that night might have played out um, if that had kept going. I hear this rustle of paper in the other room, and I see an envelope that was uh, shoved under my door. So I pick up the envelope and I open it, and it is a letter from Peggy. And she uh, is explaining to me that she forgives me and she is praying for me, and she, she loved me. All of a sudden, a light bulb goes off, and I'm starting to connect what Christ did for me with what she just modeled for me. I remember thinking and, and praying to God. I'm like, but I'm a disaster. I didn't deserve to be forgiven. And he said, I know what you are, and I know what you've done and it's okay. I had lost everything and I had wrecked my life and I just didn't know what to do. And I think that's the point where God can do the most good with you when you give up trying to fix it yourself. I asked Christ to be my savior that night. 
That was the beginning of a very different part of my life. It was about a month and a half later that I saw Peggy again. Like a good movie, I got the girl. My relationship with my daughters changed so dramatically. It's been 20 years. God has, in my case, had a lot of things to fix. For almost my entire life, I never understood love. I never understood joy. And he's given me that. He's given me that because I could let go of the junk that I was carrying around behind me. And I will always be so grateful for that. My name is Pete Gedzik, and this is my story. And it's also another one of his. I was uh, talking to Pete last night. He came to see uh, himself on, on the big screen and how it came out, and, and uh, he's the real deal. And, uh, and you know, many of you, if you're regulars here, know that we show stories like that often, and they're all the real deal. And the reason I know that is because we don't choreograph those, we don't give somebody an outline, we don't do anything silly like that, we just turn the camera on and say, talk. And, uh, you know, somebody once said to me, well, how could you talk about, you know, your life for a half an hour? Believe me, they do. And, uh, and, and people will talk for a half an hour, sometimes an hour. I did one of these recently with somebody where I wanted to capture this gentleman's story, and he talked for an hour in my office. And, and I wasn't bored at all, just captivated by his story. And the only thing we do, obviously, is, is edit them down a little bit so that they're uh, more of a soundbite for our worship uh, time. But uh, they're very real stories, and they're very powerful. And as we're going to see today, that one fits very well with where we're going in the second installment of our Identity Theft series. So as many of you know right now, our Cactus Campus, and then our venue across campus, our chapel next door, and then those watching online, uh, we're all going to gather together now for our time of teaching uh, from the Bible and to see what God might say to us. So as I always do, let's pray right now and ask God's blessing on this time. Father, uh, we're grateful today, at least I am, for the gathered church and for that we can meet in this safe place in this free country of ours and talk about things that matter to our lives. And God, I don't think there's one person here today that doesn't think about this idea of, of identity and, and what is my core identity, who am I, what my purposes here on planet earth and i pray god that as we uh, continue that discussion today that you might speak to each one of us individually and, and lord uh, if it's time even for some sort of a change or a growth period in our life would you initiate and accelerate that now we pray and we pray this in jesus name and we say together amen so we've called today's message pickpocketed by the past pickpocketed by the past. And, and I need you to latch on to both of those concepts, the idea of a pickpocket and the idea of a past. We're going to spend most of our time today talking about the past and how it can influence our present, but my point is we can be pickpocketed by our past. So let's first talk about pickpocketing. And I want you to think about the nature of what happens when you are physically or literally pickpocketed. And to help us, Let's watch a scene from Ocean's Eleven, and I want you to, to see this pickpocket scene and dial in to how a pickpocket gets pickpocketed. Look up here on the screen.
So I don't know if you've ever been pickpocketed. I haven't, thankfully, but uh, we can tell what it's all about there. It's a, uh, a slight nudge uh, on your body that you barely feel, and a little sleight of hand as something gets taken out of your pocket. Maybe a little bit of meeting of the eyes as it was in that first one so that your eyes are not distracted elsewhere, uh, like where the pickpocket is happening. And before you know it, a piece of your economic identity is gone. Uh, you, you've had something stolen from you. But what I need you to see, because this is going to play into where we're going this morning, is that pickpocketing is very subtle. It's very smooth. And it happens before you know it. You don't see it coming. You don't even realize it happened, like the end of that scene there, until you go to get something out of your pocket and you realize it's gone or something else is there. And if you can latch on to that idea at all, and I think most of us can, you're now ready to look at what we want to look at today, and this idea of our past and how our past can steal, it can literally pickpocket our identity in the present. Uh, we're in week two of a four-week series that we've entitled Identity Theft. We're, we're, we're bouncing off this modern-day phenomenon where your economic or financial identity can be stolen online or through your credit cards or your bank information or things like that. But we're making the point that there's a more core identity of who you are as an individual, as a person made in the image of God, loved by God, put here on earth for a purpose— and that from birth, many of us struggle with that identity, and part of life is getting that identity back, learning what your identity is as a person here on planet Earth, and not allowing the things around us to steal it from us. And so last week, we looked at how our image-based culture can steal our identity and rob us of who we really are. Next week, we're going to look at how even our successes, which is very prominent here in a place like Phoenix and Scottsdale, can steal our identity. Uh, but today, we want to look at our past and how our past can literally pickpocket our identity from us. And as usual, the Bible is going to offer immense help to us as it's going to guide us through a labyrinth of understanding of who we are, what this world is about, how God fits into the equation, and how all this can make a huge difference in our identity if we're willing to face our past. So like last week, I want to share with you two things, two memorable things that you can latch on to, handles if you will, one of which is going to kind of center us upon a current reality, and the other one that's going to invite us to a preferred future. So let's first all get on the same page with reality and the reality that's before us. Let's see if I can get this up there a little bit. Yeah, there we go. And, uh, and, and here it is, and that is that in a fallen world, everyone has a past, and that past is both fallen and painful. I, I hope you can own this, at least privately where you sit right now, today. That, that in a fallen world, and we'll talk about what that means in a minute, everybody, and I mean everybody, your neighbor, your friends, your coworkers, your service providers, your fellow students, your family members, everybody has a past, and that past is both fallen, and meaning not perfect, and painful. Now, now, the reason we know this is because there's a progression that most of us have put together in our minds over the years, even if you don't know that you've done this conscious or unconsciously, that we all tend to agree with. The first part of the progression is that we live in a fallen world. 
Look, everybody knows this. Atheists admit this. Agnostic, agnostic admits this. Humanists admit this. Scientists admit this. This world is not perfect. It's filled with mistakes. It's filled with blunders. It's filled even with evil. Things that happen that come out of nowhere that we can't even explain. The Bible calls it a fallen world. It has fallen from what God originally intended it to be. That's kind of a nice way of saying it, if you ask me. And so we all live in a fallen world. Everybody agrees with that. And as a result of that, people make a lot of mistakes. Give me a head nod that you all understand that. If you don't, your spouse is going to be mad at you. People make mistakes, and let's call a spade a spade. They engage in sin. Sin is the Bible's word that simply means we miss the mark. You're shooting an arrow at a target, you want to hit the bullseye, and you miss the mark. That's what the word sin means. You fall short of your intended goal. And everybody suffers from that. So a fallen world leads to sin and mistakes. Now here's the key for us today. The real bummer is, is that many times other people's sins and mistakes get passed on to those around them. And this is going to play into my point that we all have a past and that that past is painful. It would be wonderful if in this world we could commit sins and mistakes that would only affect us, right? That would be like, I mean, it would be enough. But, but we all know differently. We all know that when we fall short, when the effects of this fallen world invade our soul, like, like, like it's going to leach out to those around us. It's going to affect them as well. It's going to get passed on. So our sins and mistakes have consequences on those around us. And what we simply need to see, because we're going to move on from this in just a second, is that that's not their fault. It's not our fault when it happens to us. It's just part of the difficulty of living in a fallen world. So some of you are here today, and you have a past in which your spouse abused you either physically or verbally. That's not your fault. That's the result of sin in this world that got passed on to you. Or maybe you were in a job in which your boss was incredibly unfair to you, and it was just a miserable experience until you finally got out of it. Again, that's part of your past, and that past is painful, but that's not your fault. That was something that got passed on to you. Or maybe you were a kid. Your dad was always angry. I know it's hard to picture a dad being angry, but your dad was always angry, and he spewed his anger on you, and it's still with you now as an adult. Again, that's part of that sin getting passed on to you. Or how about maybe being born in a terrible neighborhood? Some of you were raised in awful neighborhoods. And again, that's just another example. But we can think of lots of scenarios in which in a fallen world, other people's sins and mistakes get passed on to us. And again, to take this even further, what's now we're even a bummer about that, and this one really takes the cake, is that then we find ourselves at times doing the same thing. Has that ever happened to you? Like you, 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 something happens to you, and you're immersed in that environment, and you say, I'm never, ever, ever going to do that. And then confounded of it all, you end up doing it. But we have evidence, and this is not a judgment, it's just true. We know for a fact that children who come from divorced homes are more likely to get divorced themselves. Why? You would think they'd grow up and say, I don't ever want to get a divorce. I don't ever want to put my kid through that. And yet they end up 
many times doing the same thing. People who are raised in alcoholic homes say, I never am going to do that. I'm not touching the bottle ever. But yet they end up doing it themselves. I, I love it. I, I watch this in workaholic families. You know, these families that are highly driven, you need to perform and get all A's and do this. And, and you're raised in that kind of environment and you're, you're on the treadmill all of your life and you say, I'm never going to put my kid through that. And what do you end up doing? You put your kid through that. And again, what's so insidious about this, it's being pickpocketed by our past, is that we're trying not to do those things. We're trying to say, I'll, I'll, never, I'll never do that. And again, I'm not saying by necessity you will do it. I mean, you might have beaten the odds yourself, and that's good. But, but my point is, is that in most cases, almost every case, your past is your past. It's still with you, and you're not going to come out of it unscathed. And we need to recognize that reality because many people today live in a form of denial. You ever met somebody like that? In which they say, oh, my past has no influence on my present. As they're ticking, you know, left and right like this, you know, and they're, they're just a mess. And, and you go, well, I, I think your body's trying to tell you something different. I, I think your past is still with you. I, I, I think you're still dealing with stuff. And, and until we get honest about that, we're never going to be able to deal with it. You know, I told you guys this before, but one of the things I love about the Bible is how incredibly realistic it is, and yet how optimistic it is at the same time. There's a passage in the Old Testament that was written thousands of years ago during the time of Moses that just nails this issue uh, right on the head. The Israelites are wandering in the desert after being delivered from Pharaoh and the Egyptians, and Moses is up on Mount Sinai receiving the word of God from God himself, and He's in God's presence, and at one point, look at what happens. This is a powerful statement. It says in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, Then the Lord passed by in front of him, Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and even sin. Then God says, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Now, now this is going to make you guys think I'm weird, but I actually love this passage. And the reason that I do is because it is so realistic in describing our reality today and yet, as I'm going to show you in a second, it's also incredibly optimistic about what our preferred future can be about. First, let's notice the realistic part. Notice that God says toward the end there that when people are, that when people are guilty of iniquity, of sin and mistakes in a fallen world, that there are invariably consequences to those closest to us, in particular here, the kids. When it uses that word visited here, when the iniquity is visited upon the children, in its most literal sense, now watch this, that word means a deposit is made. Something is delivered up. It's dropped in their lap. Picture a baton in a race being handed off to the next runner. But in this case, it's a broken baton that's going to have to be mended. That's what God is saying here. That when parents mess up, and it's just part of the difficulty of being a parent, it's going to affect the kids. And we're kidding ourselves if we think that's not true. 
And it's even going to affect the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren. So just so we know we're reading it right, look how one Bible expert over 100 years ago, a scholar from Britain commenting on this passage, puts it. He says, God does, by the laws which obtain in his moral universe, entail on children many consequences of their parents' ill-doing, like diseases, poverty, ignorance from a neglected education. It is this sort of visitation which is intended here. Please see, folks, all the Bible is saying at this point is that, a, is that it's a natural part of sin and mistakes in a fallen world that in some way it's going to be passed down to those around us, even in our families. It's part of the fabric of dysfunctional relationships in a fallen world. And yet, and we'll talk more about this in a minute, one of the reasons that I love this passage as well is because it's so incredibly positive. Let's not forget the first part. Can we go back two slides here and show the first part of Exodus 34? Notice how this passage begins. It says, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, he keeps loving kindness for thousands. He forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Don't forget that part. Yes, God is saying there's a visitation that's going to happen, and we have to understand that, that that's part of the machinations of a fallen world in our relational DNA. But there is a preferred future for those who are willing to develop their identity around God. There is hope and healing to be found. You know, I can remember the very first times I started to realize this. I, I almost think you have to be a young man uh, to, to, to understand this, or a young woman, obviously. Uh, but I can remember when I was a young man and I was starting to, to deal with life more head-on, and, and, and I was experiencing some depression and anxiety in my early years. I was just going to seminary, and, you know, somebody suggested to me that, that maybe I need to start to understand my past that maybe my past is playing havoc on my present. And again, like a lot of people, I was like, oh, come on. That's like a bunch of Freudian psychobabble. I mean, you know, what, what are you talking about? I, I mean, I'm tougher than that. You'd think I'd know if my past was playing havoc on my present, you know? And, and I said, well, you just might want to be open to that. And so I, I started to process that more with my dear wife, who I was dating at that time, and with, um, with friends and through some books. It was the first time I read Larry Crabb's book, Inside Out, and eventually I would see a counselor. And, and I realized, and this might just seem so obvious to some of you, I realized that, that my dad, and by the way, I love my dad. You guys know that I talk about him often. I, I mean, he's just, I, I really respect the man. I visit him every quarter. I, I wouldn't do that. Well, I guess I could visit mom, but no, I visit both of them. And so I, I, I do love my dad. And my dad was a good protector. He was a good provider. I mean, you know, he took us on family vacations. I mean, all that. But, but I realized that my dad also, because he grew up in the Great Depression, and because his dad died in 1941 during World War II, and he left my dad pretty much an orphan, just my, my dad and, and my grandma, and they had to sell the car in California just to get a train ticket back to family in Peoria. And, you know, he grew up in a 900-square-foot home in, in a tough part of Peoria, and they didn't have any money. And, you know, and then he, he had to get a scholarship to college, a scholarship to law school. I mean, he's a self-made man. That, that when you describe a guy like that, I realized in my early 20s that my dad 
uh, was three things. He was very, very bright. He, he was very, very introspective, which is a nice way of saying moody. He was very moody growing up, and uh, he was very, very distant. Um, and that was probably the hardest thing for me to come to grips with. And it makes sense given his background, but it also had a huge effect on me. My, my, my dad never really, well, he obviously never said, I love you. That, that was always mom's job. Don't you love it? Remember these days where your mom would say, you know your father loves you, right? You know, and that type of stuff. And I, well, yeah, well, he never says it. But anyways, you know, dad never said that. And he, he never really touched us. I mean, he never spanked us and he never hugged us. And, you know, dad, whenever he had a problem, you'd go down to his office in the basement where there was this massive lawyer's desk. And he would sit on one side and the kid, picture me, a little five-year-old sitting on the other side. <laughs> And he'd say, what's the problem, son, you know? And I'd lay out my case, and he'd try it in court, you know, and we'd come up with a verdict. And, you know, that was the way my, my dad functioned. And, uh, and, and, and it, when it was, you know, you laugh at it now, but as a young man, it was really creating a lot of havoc. Now watch this on my relationships. Because I didn't want to be my dad. But over the years, if Kim had to describe me at times, ironically, she would say, He's kind of bright. <laughs> He's definitely introspective and moody. And, and he can be very, very distant. And, and, and I got to tell you, those are three things, except for maybe the bright part, I don't want to be. I, I don't want to be introspective and moody. I don't want to be distant. But I've been working at this now for over 30 years. I'll talk in a minute how I've been working at it, of discovery. And you know what I realized? Exodus 34 isn't kidding that the sins of the father are visited upon the children. I now look at my son now, and I tried so hard to raise my son in a different environment. I hugged him, and I told him I loved him, you know. I mean, I, if anything, I said to him at one point, I mean, it must have been hard to have been raised in such a loving home, you know. I mean, I just, you know, I, was, I just OD'd on, on loving him this way and, and such. And, and, and there are times where I look at my son, and I think, well, he's, he's really bright. He's in a PhD program at ASU. He's moody as all get out, and he's distant. Huh, go figure. Now, maybe some of you can tell a similar story. Can I get a head nod at that? But where you realize the truth of Exodus 34. And that's why I say everybody has a past, and everybody's past in some way is both fallen and painful. That's all I need you to understand at this point. Because we're now bumping up, and we're going to get all positive here for the rest of our time together, against the second truism that we need to realize if we're ever gonna develop an identity that might be different from our past. And this is the turning point, I'll warn you, for those who choose the road less traveled, and that is this, that identity reclamation, reclaiming your God-given identity, happens through processing your past and forging a preferred future. It's a very intentional thing we're talking about here, gang. And it all hinges on processing past and forging a preferred future, hopefully the future that God has for you. You know, if there's ever a guy in the Bible who got this, it was the Apostle Paul. For those of you who might not know who the Apostle Paul was, he was one of the primary leaders in the New Testament period about 2,000 years ago. And he was so prominent, he wrote just about half of the New Testament books that we read today, 13 epistles. And what you also need to know about Paul is that he grew up in a very, very legalistic church. Some of you think you grew up in a legalistic church. I promise you, he's got you beat. 
He grew up in the kind of Judaism in which he was taught from very early on that God demanded absolute perfection when it came to obeying the Old Testament law and even all the traditions that the rabbis had developed over the years. And he was committed to doing this. This was drilled into him during his youth as well as his early adulthood. And so as a result of this, I think most of us could understand that this guy was highly driven in his job. In fact, he writes in his autobiographical chapter, Philippians 3, that he excelled beyond measure against all the contemporaries of his day. And almost surely this stemmed from his past and, his, and, and, and this innate desire for him to prove himself to God and those around him. Paul also had some very serious sin in his past. He killed a man. And not just any man, but Paul killed one of God's men. I mean, the Bible is filled with murder. Moses killed an Egyptian. David killed a common citizen. But Paul the apostle killed one of God's men. He killed a saint. Do you remember it? Saint Stephen. And some of you are saying, we well, didn't actually kill him. He didn't throw the stone. No, he was the mafia boss that ordered the hit. That was Paul the apostle. He said, I want this guy dead. He got a crew to do it, and he stood over the entire scenario and watched as Stephen was stoned to death. So add it all up. We're talking about a guy who enters into his Christian faith with a boatload of baggage. He was a legalist, highly driven, big-time sin. That's enough to weigh down the sturdiest among us. And in writing about some of this baggage... Uh, that have been so much a part of his identity over the years, I want you to look at what Paul the Apostle concludes we need to do about our past so that it doesn't pick, pickpocket us. Autobiographical chapter, Philippians 3, right smack dab in the center of it, he says this, Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, Forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now, th there's a lot going on in these few words of Paul the Apostle. Let's break some of them down and, and, and go deeper in these. First, notice, and I love this, how, how incredibly freeing the first sentence is. I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. What does it mean? It means this sense of maturity, completion, of arriving at a place emotionally and relationally and spiritually in which you say, it's okay, I'm good. Paul the Apostle is saying, I'm not there yet. I'm a work in progress. God's still chipping away at my soul. And what adds a lot of texture and grit to these words is that our best guess is that he wrote Philippians in 62 AD, three years before his death, almost 25, 30 years into being a Christian. So for those of you who have been at this a long time, see my friend Bill Epley here in the front row, take heart. Paul the Apostle did not arrive a few years before his death. You and I, God understands our works in progress and, and that it's going to be a continual uphill climb in our sanctification. So how do we then develop this new identity? Notice that Paul did three things. Now here's what I want you to latch on to. He forgot something, and then he reached forward to something, and what he reached forward to was an upward call toward God in Christ Jesus. So he forgot, he reached forward, and he reached forward to God. 
That word forgetting what lies behind has, has gotten a real bad rap among many Christians today. I, I hear many Christians use this passage to say, well, it's in the past, and what's in the past is in the past, and so I think I'll ignore it and get on with my life. And I love Dr. Phil would say, well, how's that working for you, right? Because we all know people who say that, and, and then what happens is, like a week later, they're falling apart and they're a mess, and you go, well, how's that forgetting thing working for you? See, we use this phrase, forgetting what lies behind, as an excuse for not dealing with our past, for ignoring our past, for living in a state of denial. But that's not what this means, guys. I've, I've researched this to the tilt. That phrase or word, forget, literally means, in the original language, to lose out of mind. And it carries a connotation that what you're losing out of mind are the things that have had a stranglehold on you in your life. So like for Paul the Apostle, his legalism, his, his, his sinful past, and, and, and his upbringing, and his drivenness. And what he was saying is, is that I got to recognize those things I have to process them in my life because that's what this whole chapter is about. Read the verses before this. He's processing all of it. And as I do that, then I'm able to set them aside and, if you will, forget them and lose them out of my mind. But don't miss all the legwork that went into it. He didn't just say, well, I think I'm going to forget what I don't know. He's saying, no, I have to recognize what I don't know, understand it, process it, even delve into it a little bit, deal with it. Then I can forget it and, and put it beyond me. But it takes work to do that. And only then was he able to reach forward and, and reach forward to God and develop a new identity. Uh, I want to give you a great illustration of how this works here. You know, somebody asked me this week, uh, one of the creative arts people, I think it was Eve, she said to me, um, you know, are you going to have an illustration this week or a, a prop? And I was like, no, I hadn't thought of anything. And so I thought of something, and, uh, and, and, and maybe this will be helpful to you. I actually think this is pretty good. I, I want you to picture that this jar of, of, of very slightly murky water is your soul. The Bible says that your soul is the compilation of your heart and your mind, your thoughts and your feelings, and even it functions in your will. It's even a willful part of you. It's, it's really the inside of you. It's everything but your body. And so imagine that this is your soul. And on its best day, it's, it's fairly clear. I can see my hand through this, and, and it's a little bit murky like most of your souls are. But on its best day, it's not doing too bad. But notice that deep down in your soul is a lot of sediment. I think we can all admit that. All of us have a lot of sediment deep down in our soul. That's your past. It's the things, both good and bad, that are still with you. Sediment's not bad. There might be gold in them there hills. I mean, there could be, could be gold in that sediment, but there's also a lot of dirt in that sediment. And one of the cool things about life is that over time, especially given a lot of time and distance, that, that sediment settles down into your life and gets deep inside of you. And as long as nothing shakes the jar, see where I'm going with this? You're okay. But invariably what happens in life is that something comes along that shakes up your soul. Now watch what happens when something shakes up your soul and the sediment gets stirred in your soul and before you know it, all that stuff that was buried deep down is now starting to come 
up into your soul. And before you know it, maybe it's just me, but I don't think so, things can get really cloudy, things can get really murky, uh, things can get really unclear, and, and, and things like depression, anxiety, fear, confusion start to invade your soul. And let's recognize what they are. It's the sediment from your past many times, not always, but many times. And here is invariably what Christians do. And this is, if you don't take anything out of the day, try to get this. And that's what most Christians, what most people do at this point, is they say, well, I'm just gonna try to step back and, and let things settle and just give it some time because time heals all things and, and, and let the dust and the sediment settle. And the confounded nature of that is that many times that does work. You've all heard the old saying, this too shall pass. You ever heard that saying? So a depressive episode comes into your life, or anxiety, or for men, you, you all of a sudden you find yourself angry, much more angry than you usually are, and something's really getting at you, but you don't know what it is. The sediment's been stirred. And so what we do is we say, well, I think I'll play some more golf. I, I think I'll watch a bunch of Law and Order episodes. Maybe that will help. Or I'll, I'll read a couple of novels. Or I'll take a vacation. Or how about this one? I think I'll spend money. That will make me feel good. I'll, I'll do whatever it does to make me feel good. And, and, and again, what happens is, is that sometimes that works. Because, you know, over time, the sediment, if we waited long enough, this will get clear again. It'll take a while. But here's the problem with that form of coping mechanism, is that uh, if you do that... Uh, really soon again, something else is going to come by to stir the waters. That's just life. Remember that fallen world thing? It's life. And, and it's going to stir it up again. And so here's the way most people live. They live with murky water almost all the time in their soul. Amen? We do. We, we live, most people, even many Christians, in a state of anger, depression, discouragement, fear, disappointment, hurt, sadness. Do I need to list more emotions? I mean, that, that's where we live with most of us. And that's what we're known for. And that's why we're doing this series on identity theft to try to deal with the murky water, not just let it settle over time because it's just going to get stirred up again. And you're saying, well, what do we do? <laughs> oh, you're going to love this. You have to get your hands dirty. The only way to adequately deal with it is to reach deep down into your soul and to pull up the sediment and to start to look closely at it, watch this and say, oh, that's not that bad. I think I can deal with that. That's not too bad. Oh, that's crappy. I got to put that one aside and deal with that one. And Oh, that's not too bad. And oh, look, a ring I lost years ago. That's not too bad. Oh, oh, that was really bad. That one's been getting me for years. I didn't even know it. See what I'm doing there? I'm taking an inside look. I'm looking at my soul. I'm understanding what's really going on there. For me, this idea of a, of a father that was moody, <laughs> a father that was very distant, that drives my wife crazy even to this day, and, and having to work through that. But if I was afraid to look at those things, if I was afraid to get dirty in the sediment of my soul, then I'd just be living with murky water all the time. There's a great passage in the Proverbs that tells us how real this is. Proverbs 20, verse 5, one of my favorite passages, says the purposes of a person's heart are deep waters, but one who has insight draws them out. 
That's what tells you this illustration is spot on. The purposes of your heart, your soul, are like deep waters. There's stuff deep down there that's going on, but a person of insight knows how to draw them out and understand what they are. Some of you are here today, and, and, and we love you. I love you so much. I, and you're saying what Pete said earlier. You're saying, but my life's a disaster. <laughs> Did you catch that statement in his story? I love that phrase. It's so honest. My life was a disaster. And life can get that way, maybe through a failed marriage, maybe through a lot of emotional problems that you might have, maybe through, uh, through I don't know, an upbringing that you had. There's so many things that can lead to life feeling like a disaster. But God knows what is deep down there. God knows what's going on in your soul. And he wants you to be a person who's not afraid to draw them out. And I'll tell you something else here, because I don't know your life, but maybe this will be helpful for you. Uh, my journey of drawing these things out would not have been made possible if I hadn't allowed others in. I didn't do it alone. I can remember one of the first times I was starting to deal with my, my past, I, the only person I had let in was my wife, and I didn't even let her in. She weaseled her way in back in the late 1980s. And she started to see things in me and she'd call them out and that would just create more anxiety. And before I know it, she's like smack dab in the middle of my heart. And I, I knew two things, that this is the woman I want to marry and I hate her. And so I, I just thought that's, you know, and I really don't hate her. I love her, but I, 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 she was the first one I let in. And uh, I, I can remember at one point my boss at, at, at the church I was interning in, I respected my boss so much. He was just a, a great pastor said to me, and this was so hurtful at the time, he said, I really think you need professional help. <laughs> and, and I remember thinking, well, you know, because this was back in the 80s, like professional help is for people that are like this. You know, I thought, you know, professional help was for, you know, people that had gone off the deep end into some form of psychosis. And I thought, I, I don't think that's me. And then he said, no, let me help you. You can go see my therapist. <laughs> and I remember thinking, you got a therapist? Like, you're, you're really normal, and you're successful, and you're productive. And he said, yeah, I am all those things. And he said, and I got a lot of issues in my life I need to process. And he sent me to his counselor, and I won't bore you with all the details, but his counselor helped me tremendously as a young man. I read a lot of books back then. As I said, Larry Crabb's initial book, Inside Out, influenced me greatly. I read a lot of Minerth and Meyer books, for those of you who might remember those days, and and, and I read a lot of books that helped me in my recovery. And every one of them, and here's my point, gang, helped me draw out what was going on in my soul, helped me process my past. And here's the, here's the kicker. I haven't arrived yet. Can we say amen to that? I haven't arrived yet, and neither have you. But my wife would say, and I think this is probably the best compliment, that I'm not the man that I was back then, that I'm a different man now with a different core identity. And my identity, one last time, go to Philippians 3 here, guys. My identity is one that is now looking to God in Christ Jesus in an upward call sort of way every, every day. Here's the deal. My identity, and I think you guys know this because I'm your pastor, is solidly wrapped up in the Lord. He is my all in all. When we sang that earlier, he is my ultimate satisfaction. He is my ultimate hope, my ultimate purpose. He, as the Bible says, is the lover of my soul. 
And yet that hasn't come quickly. I mean, I did get saved back in 1981 through accepting Christ. We'll talk about that in two weeks. But the reality is, is that it's taken years for me to develop the kind of walk with God in which I can confidently say, he is the one who is most shaping my identity. And I will also tell you, however, it didn't happen because I just said, well, the past is the past. I'm not going to deal with it. It's happened because I've not been afraid to pull a Philippians 3. I've not been afraid to pull a Proverbs 20. I've not been afraid to honor Exodus 34. And those things have been very helpful to me. And hopefully it will be the start of a journey for you. Last thought, and then we'll pray. Had a guy come up last night after we uh, did our, our, our worship service, and Neil and I were standing up here, and this guy came up to me, and uh, he was this young man's man, and he said, I need help. My life is gripped with fear, and I don't know what it's about, and I don't know what to do, but I'm finally ready to talk to somebody. Here's what you guys need to know. If that's the only thing that came out of this weekend, I'm going to smile all week. But I hope it's not the only thing. I hope you too are ready for a journey, moving closer to God, finding your identity in him, and finally not being pickpocketed by your past. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the truthfulness of your word, for the compassion of your word, for the realism of your word. And God, I thank you that from Exodus 34 to Proverbs 20 to Philippians 3, you share with us what our lives can be about and how our, our identity cannot be stolen by all the things around us. And so, Lord, I simply want to close by praying for these dear people here and at Cactus Venue and over in Chapel and online that, God, as we process these words for our own lives, no matter what age we might be, Lord, whether we're young, whether we're old, middle-aged, what have you, Lord, that all of us would realize we have a past that is painful and fallen, and yet, Lord, that doesn't have to be what defines us, that we can forget, we can reach forward, and what we're reaching forward to is you. Help us to do that, we pray. Meet us now at this communion table, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.